everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, welcome back. We're, uh, we're back solo again, me and Brian, and we are back to some more good meaty foundational stuff. We're trying to mix it up a little between the really uh, weird and wonderful cases and really kind of bread and butter things. So I believe Brian's going to wow me with, with some unfortunate endocrine disasters. Does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. All right. Well, lay it on me. All right. So you are you get a call about a patient who's just come into the ED and the needs to be admitted to the ICU. It's a 43-year-old male. Initially came in with some altered mental status and about a three-day history of nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain. Uh, prior to that, family said he was complaining of just not feeling well in general, just sort of a cold-type cold type symptoms, but nothing major. Past medical history is fairly benign, uh, but does include diabetes. So... You have uh, some labs that the ED has drawn for you, uh, including an ABG that shows a pH of 7.12, a PCO2 of 17, PO2 of 160, and a uh, bicarb of 5.6. CBC is pretty unremarkable, except for he does have a brief little bit of leukocytosis at uh, 12. He's currently afebrile. Um, your BMP shows a sodium of 139, a potassium of five, a chloride of 112, a CO2 of 11.2, BUN of 16, creatinine of 1.3, and a glucose of 420. How would you like to proceed? Well, so it sounds like we got somebody with most strikingly a metabolic acidosis with some degree of respiratory compensation. Uh, They're hyperglycemic. And then there's some other kind of maybe more secondary lab abnormalities, like maybe a touch of acute kidney injury and that sort of thing. So his main complaints are a few days of nausea, vomiting, and then um, some, what, kind of upper respiratory symptoms, like congestion, coughing, that kind of thing? Yeah, family says he's been kind of coughing and has just just more snot than normal, over the last say three or four days. Um, but then the last two days he's really had this abdominal pain and nausea and vomiting is, is really kicked in. And then today he comes into the ED because his, he's altered mental status. Okay. Give me a sodium, the chloride and the bicarb again. Sure. So sodium's 139 chloride is 112 and the bicarb, you want the bicarb on the gas or the bicarb on the CBC or on the BMP rather on the chemistry 11.2. All right. The anion gap is about 16, which is, Correct. of course, the sodium minus the chloride minus the bicarb. And that is the bicarb from the chemistry, which is the one that they measure. The one on the gas is probably in the ballpark, but is sort of a calculated value. So there's an anion gap, metabolic acidosis. And in the setting of hyperglycemia in a diabetic we should probably presume this is DKA. Um, 
could there be something else going on? Perhaps. Um, if they haven't done one, I would probably get a lactate. But let's see. One of the things that I will also sometimes do is take kind of a quantitative approach to the, the gap. This is from the like strong ion kind of people. So if the bicarb is, uh, is 11-ish, a normal bicarb is what, 24-ish? So that, that kind of bicarb gap or that difference is about uh, 13, that it's low by. Whereas the anion gap here was 16, and if you call normal 12-ish, that's high by about 4. Um, you can adjust for the albumin, which I didn't even ask about, but honestly, I'm usually too lazy. And I don't find that it usually makes a huge, huge difference. Um, so if we forget that, then we can attribute 4 of our bicarb drop from this anion gap uh, 4 of 13, which leaves 9 to account for. And then you can ask how much of it could be from a non-gap acidosis. So if we take our sodium 139 minus our chloride of 112, that leaves uh, 27. And if you call a normal strong ion difference about 39, then that's decreased by about... 12, which pretty much accounts for the rest of that gap. Anyway, not that anyone has to follow that, but you can try to kind of uh, do accounting and find um, all of your anions here. But practically speaking, I would probably send at least a lactate to see if there's any other obvious anions. But otherwise, uh, I would probably guess that we're looking at a, a DKA. Um, and go take a look at the patient. How are they looking? First of all, let me just say, that was a lot of MICU math right there. Um, <laughs> down, down in the surgical ICU, we're more like anion gap high. And that's and we call it a day. Uh, <laughs> um, no, so, oh yeah, so you go see the patient, and he is, uh, you know, he's a little tachypnic, kind of some small breathing type of stuff. Um, he is... GCS-wise, he does open his eyes when you talk to him, and he follows commands. He's confused, uh, but if you're not stimulating him, he is pretty lethargic. Um, I wouldn't say unresponsive, but, you know, minimally responsive. Um, he otherwise appears, you know, pretty acutely ill. He's a little pale, um, a little diaphoretic, but, um, uh, you know, nothing awful. Abdomen is benign? Benign how? Is it soft? Is it tender? Yeah, so it's it soft. Tender. It is tender to palpation when you push on it, uh, but it's soft. Uh, it's a little distended maybe, but uh, but not markedly so. Okay. Uh, any imaging that was done? Uh, you have a chest x-ray that shows some atelectasis and maybe some infiltrates in the right lower lobe. All right. Well, I got to digress uh, and just say that I really enjoy DKA. And I know you're going to call me a, a Mickey person again, but um, <laughs> DKA, I think, is just such a great example of what we do in critical care because these patients are truly quite sick. I mean, they are abnormal in most of the ways that critically ill patients can get abnormal. And it's real. I mean, you know, if they're acidotic with a pH of 7.1 or something, that, that is indeed a pH of 7.1. And you have to manage all these things, their pH, their fluids, um, you know, glucoses, um, all this kind of interesting stuff. Uh, but they get better. 
so you get to kind of see the whole course of illness where you stabilize a sick patient and get them better and get them out of there. And it's all like on fast track because you can do it all in like less than a day. So it's perfect for practice. I mean, it's like God put DK on earth for people to learn critical care. Um, so that, that's, my, <laughs> that's my take on that. Um, my general approach is you got to diagnose DKA, which is not as hard as it sounds. Uh, the challenging part is that the presentation clinically can be kind of protean. Um, people can just look sort of vaguely ill. Um, abdominal or GI complaints are not uncommon, um, sort of constitutional things. Uh, however, from a lab perspective, the diagnosis is usually there. So they have a metabolic acidosis with an anion gap, and they're hyperglycemic. Now, can you posit some other mix of problems that would cause that? Sure. But that, that's pretty much, by and large, DKA. The only ones that will confuse you are uh, they have a gap for some other reason, which, of course, you should go look for. Usually, I will get a serum beta-hydroxybutyrate level which is kind of the most common ketone that we can test for. It's not the only ketone that exists, but it's sort of what's most easily tested. Um, And then you can kind of prove that your anion gap is from ketones. But you should also look for other causes of gap, certainly. And that's the only diagnostic challenge here. You should ask why they're in DKA. So just like any of these chronic diseases that have acute exacerbations, um... You treat the exacerbation, but you should ask why it happened. And like a lot of things, commonly it's a medication issue. So somebody was plus or minus controlled on their home regimen, and then they perhaps weren't taking it, or they weren't well controlled and they were already borderline or whatever. Or there was some kind of stressor or trigger that changed their metabolism. And most commonly, that might be an infection. Um, can you have other things? Yeah, sometimes you maybe you're started on steroids and that makes you hyperglycemic or something like that. But you should wonder about those. And of course, the infection issue is challenging because a lot of these other problems can also look like sepsis. So people are acidotic, they look unwell, they could have a white count and so on. Um, so how do you sort those out? Well, it's kind of a gestalt thing, I think. If they're looking really sick, then you're not wrong to empirically give them some antibiotics and do cultures and do a sepsis thing. Otherwise, uh, you can usually wait until you treat the GKA and kind of see what shakes out of it and see what's left. If Certainly, if there are any focal kind of findings, um, you can try to treat those. So, you know, abdominal complaints, you can certainly get just from DKA. But if they're quite striking, it's worth doing some labs or imaging for that. Um, something like this, where there looks like there could be a focal infiltrate in the chest, could that be from pneumonia? Uh, it's a fair question to ask. You know, they, this person had some respiratory complaints. It sounds a bit more like more of a viral upper respiratory thing. Um, but, you know, you could send some, uh, some viral serologies if that's your thing. Uh, it's not unreasonable to probably do some cultures such as of sputum. And it wouldn't break my heart to empirically cover with antibiotics for now, although a patient like this who otherwise looked fairly stable, I probably would not. You could do a procalcitonin if that's what you're into, but otherwise, you're pretty much treating DKA. So, um, you said he was normotensive. Yes. Okay. What was the heart rate? Um, 105. Okay. So a little tacky. Um, 
Most of these patients, I would probably grab the ultrasound and take a quick look at the heart and perhaps the IVC to get some sense for their volume status. Shall we do that? Sure. Uh, so you look at his heart and you find that it is a little hyperdynamic. His IVC is pretty collapsible. Uh, he does look a little on the dry side. Um, family tells you that he has been throwing up kind of off and on for the last 24 to 48 hours, not, uh, not taking a lot of PO in. Yeah. Okay. So th- this is probably a patient who's hypovolemic and that is as a rule, how these patients are for a combination of reasons. I think the most important is polyuria. You get severely hyperglycemic, you spill glucose into your urine, it draws in fluid behind it osmotically and you pee a lot. Um, so these patients end up very dry just for that reason. And then often they're nauseous, maybe vomiting, uh, and not taking much in. So it's not unusual for a DKA patient to come in many liters low. So that's kind of my starting point. But beyond that, I think you still have to assess them like anyone to get a sense. They could be a little dry. They could be very dry. Sometimes they're euvolemic or even hypervolemic. I mean, if they have other things going on, um, so what I'll generally do is just bolus them to achieve euvolemia, the same as you would any patient, guided by their exam, perhaps things like ultrasound. So someone like this, I'd probably give them a liter of something like LR right up front, and often they'll have had some in the ER as well. That's my approach to fluid, bolus them until they're euvolemic. Some people, and uh, you know, DKA is very protocolizable. So if you look around, you'll see a lot of algorithms for doing this. Look on UpToDate or wherever. Some of those sources will tell you, put them on a drip. So you put them on like, I don't know, a liter an hour or something of crystalloid. You can do that, but um, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me pharmacokinetically because bolusing is the most efficient way to get someone euvolemic And then they may have some ongoing fluid losses until you get their glucose down if they keep peeing, but it's not really tremendous. So I'd rather start with bolusing and then, you know, you can put them on some reasonable amount of maintenance fluid, but putting them on a high drip doesn't make as much sense because it's going to take a while to get them euvolemic. And then after that, it'll probably be too much, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also this thing where people like to use normal saline. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's historical. It might be because these patients are usually hyperkalemic initially. So people are afraid of giving them fluid with potassium. Um, But the problem is that if you give them like 10 liters of normal saline, they all end up with this horrific hyperchloremic non-gap acidosis from that after you correct their gap. Now, you could argue that that's a bad thing. They probably do okay with it, but it certainly looks bad on paper. Uh, It can confuse people. And there is some consistent signal in the literature that high chloride fluids can be a little bit um, nephrotoxic. So I usually prefer more of a balanced fluid like LR. Um, People worry about the potassium, but again, there's some decent evidence that giving somebody with a serum potassium of 5.5, a fluid that has three or four of potassium, and it obviously is only going to lower it. And in fact, will probably have less adverse effect than giving them a very acidotic fluid, which causes more potassium shift out of their cells from the acidosis. So that's my argument. 
but it's not a hill that I would die on if somebody out there was obsessed with sailing. But so that's fluid. Some people think that fluid is even more important than giving insulin. I don't know if that's true, but certainly it's important for the same reasons that it's important for anybody. Uh, but also, I mean, the catecholamine surge you get from hypovolemia and really shock is part of why they're in this loop of DKA. I mean, that causes a glucose release. So if you can quiet that down and, of course, get them euvolemic, dilute their glucose, I mean, that'll do a lot of getting them back to normal. A lot of these abnormalities are just from shock. It's not from DKA per se. So important stuff. And then there's the question of uh, insulin. So has he gotten anything in the ER? Uh, not yet. No. All right. We got to get him on some insulin. Typically we will bolus some IV regular insulin and then put him on a drip. How you dose those is kind of whatever you're into. The way I actually learned many years ago, and no one else seems to do this anymore. So I've kind of stopped trying to push it, but I kind of liked it was you, you bolus them, uh, 0.1 units of insulin for every hundred of serum glucose. So if their glucose is 700, you give them seven. And then you put them on a drip at seven an hour. That makes some sense to me, but no one seems to do that anymore. Now I think the most common thing is you give them 0.1 per kilogram of body weight. So if they weigh 70 kilos and you bolus them seven and then you put them on seven. Um, now, is that ideal Probably. body weight or actual body weight? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, these are all guesstimates, obviously. Sure. It's like the Parkland formula for burns. It gives you somewhere to start, but you're going to have to titrate anyway. Um, by and large, I think these get you into this similar areas, unless you have someone with really crazy body habitus or really crazy glucoses or something like that. So I, at the end of the day, I don't care all that much. Um, if you just said, we'll start everyone at seven or something, that's probably fine. Um, the other question is, do you bolus at all? I don't, again, I don't think it matters all that much. It speeds things up a little bit, but only by about an hour. I mean, as you, you can imagine, if you bolus them seven and then put them on drip at seven, if you didn't bolus them, you'd be giving them the same amount of insulin over the next hour. So at most, you cut off an hour of your timeline. And some people argue that it can drop them a little fast. Um, there's some ED literature that it doesn't matter all that much. Again, at the end of the day, I don't really care. So I'd start them on something in that ballpark. Uh, and then how you titrate it depends on where you are. You may have to manually do it. You may have to um, use some sort of a protocol. If the, nurse, the nurses may have a, a nurse-driven protocol for that, which can be convenient. Some places have a computer algorithm. Um, Glucomander is the one that I've seen. I think there's other ones that tries to use some fuzzy logic and plot out where the glucose is going. Uh, some people are not big believers in how well it works. I think it makes sense how well any particular implementation functions is up for grabs. But the challenge to doing it manually is that it's not quite as easy as it looks. IV regular insulin is pretty fast acting, but it's not instant. I mean, it maybe a good hour or two until you see the full effect of the change you just made. So if you're getting hourly glucoses, which you should be, you have to do a little bit of forecasting. You know, change not just for what you, the glucose you just got, but may also for kind of the last couple. So a computer that tries to take that into account would make sense. But again, 
any of these are in a reasonable ballpark of way to do things. So start on my insulin, uh, get some fluid into them. We talked about I'd probably do a beta hydroxy just to kind of confirm the diagnosis. I would probably send a lactate, which I expect to be a little elevated, uh, and then it'll clear later, but it'll just help us kind of account for everything. I wouldn't go around chasing any other causes of anion gap necessarily unless there was some suspicion that, you know, they consumed peraldehyde or something. Um, make sure they have reasonable IV access. They don't usually need lines or anything. They don't usually need to be intubated, um, even if they're pretty obtunded. And this is, I think, one of the key things for DKA, and I think tells you something useful about DKA overall. Often in critical illness, what's most important to the patient's prognosis is not how abnormal their findings and how severely deranged they are. It's what the cause is and how correctable it is. So if you showed me all of these findings and numbers in a patient who was, say, septic or something, I would say, oh, shoot, they are a mess. Uh, we should innovate them, put a bunch of lines in, uh, etc. But if it's from DKA, I'm not too worried because I know that all this is going to get better really quickly. And that, that is, so I think, says something kind of profound about, about illness. Um, but anyway, so, okay, yes, they're obtunded. That's going to get better. They're acidotic. That's going to get better. Um, so mostly it's a matter of these kind of metabolic medical things for the per- first you know, period of time. What else? Um, labs. So generally we'll get a blood gas up front, again, to prove that they are acidotic. You don't usually need to trend them. Some people will send a ABG or a VBG or something. VBGs are really fine for all this. You're just looking at the pH and the, uh, the CO2. Um, some people will trend them. I think that's silly. Once you've proven the diagnosis, there's no real issues. The only thing you need to follow is hourly finger stick glucoses, which is how you're going to titrate your drip. And then uh, some kind of serum chemistry, usually a, a BMP, usually every four hours. And the utility of these is you're going to follow their serum bicarb and using that, their anion gap. And you can follow different things. You could follow their beta-hydroxybutyrate. You could follow their bicarb. But I think most of us will use the gap because it's sort of the most straightforward way to prove that they have cleared their DKA. Um, so you're looking for that in your chemistry. And then you're looking at electrolytes. And that is an important part of this because you will have a lot of electrolyte derangement in this setting. Most of these patients are hyperkalemic when they come in. And then... Predictably, their potassium will fall as you give them insulin. You drive uh, glucose and potassium back into cells after they've shifted out from their acidosis, and then it'll fall. And where you land will depend on how bad you were. If they were in a normal range on their potassium or even a little low or even just mildly high, they'll often end up low after some treatment, and you'll have to give them back potassium. So if they're getting... Even in the normal range, I would think about giving them potassium. If they're getting low at all, you for sure need to get after it. And if they're getting too low, and this would for me mean probably below about 3.5 or so, certainly below low threes or three, um, you probably need to hold your insulin because you're likely going to keep dropping it faster than you can replace it. 
Uh, some people put potassium in their fluids. Again, I don't usually give them a whole bunch of maintenance fluids, so I'll give it separately. Uh, it doesn't really matter. You're still giving it IV, and if they're able to take PO, you could try to give them some oral potassium, which ends up being really quicker. It's just a lot of them are uh, nauseous and not really up to taking horse pills. But uh, So keep up with that. What else? Oh, uh, their sodium will often be low initially. Not so much in this case, but that's a, quote, pseudo-hyponatremia, right? This is caused by the hyperosmolarity of their glucose, drawing free water into the intravascular space, diluting out their sodium. So it's pseudo in the sense that it's caused by fluid shifts. And once you treat them, it's going to go back to where it was. It's not pseudo in the sense that it's not real. It's not a lab abnormality. Um, so this is actually their sodium. And if, if there was some reason you need to work with that, like, I don't know, they had a head injury or something like that, um, it is real. It's just that it's going to correct itself soon. That's probably it. They don't usually need a Foley. Uh, you can certainly place one if you're worried about it. Uh, and yeah, so that's where I would start. All right. So um, how much? So how much do you chase the diagnosis, the causative diagnosis in these people. Like this guy has what you said, like you suggested uh, some probably viral upper respiratory infection, but he's got abdominal pain. He's got altered mental status, both of which could be explained by the DKA itself, uh, but could also be precipitating causes, right? Yeah. And that's kind of what I was getting at. It, 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 it can be tricky. And I think I would drive it based on, uh, to what extent one thing in particular seemed to stand out from the kind of low-level derangement of their, their labs and imaging? Um, for instance, if they had a impressively elevated LFTs, I might think more about an abdominal source like a cholecystitis mm-hmm. or a pancreatitis or something like that. Um, if they really had seemed to have a lot of respiratory complaints, you could look there and so on. And, and then ultimately, it's just how sick they are. So if they were, for instance, severely uh, hypotensive, and they had a very high lactate. And, you know, if they had something like a fever, that's not real common in DKA. So those could push you more towards treating their DKA, but also empirically treating for a sepsis. Until they clear their DKA, you can kind of get a better look at what's left. If they're not too sick, then you can just treat the DKA and then see if there is something not so much septic, but that still warrants your attention, if all that makes sense. Yeah. Well, the history certainly say, helps. So, I mean, if they, right. like you said, there is the DKA stuff, which is mostly kind of constitutional. And then if there's something else, especially that perhaps preceded it. Right. Well, I was going to say too, you know, like if the abdominal pain, if the altered mental status, if that's all because of the DKA, then it should resolve as the DKA resolves. So I think, like you said, this is stuff that, um, you know, can really be treated inside of a day. Um, I don't think you lose a lot by saying, let's just treat the DKA and see if things get better, right? If the abdominal pain doesn't resolve, if the ultramental status doesn't resolve, then maybe we look into, is there something more going on with those areas? Yeah, typically. And yeah, can you have some symptoms like that from DKA that lag a little and take some time to get better? Sure. I mean, it's kind of a gestalt thing, but ultimately it's going to come down to your, your level of suspicion and, you know... Is there perhaps an infection or something else going on? Yeah, sure. But then also, is that the sort of thing that's just 
in quotes, an infection, or is this like a sepsis thing? Because if it's a sepsis thing that's really causing them to be critically ill, then that needs to be treated more expeditiously. Whereas even if they have a URI or a cellulitis or something, you don't need to, you know, load them up on broad spectrum antibiotics in the first couple hours for that. I mean, that may be an outpatient problem (laughs) and that you can identify after you treat their DKA. Right. So, uh, all right. So you've got this guy, you're giving him fluid, you're giving him insulin. He's getting better. Um, how do you know when to stop? Okay. So this is the other challenge. Um, typically there are kind of a couple endpoints we're going for here. And this gets to at, at what are we trying to achieve? What we're actually trying to do is get them out of ketosis. And one aspect of that is going to be bringing down their their serum glucose. But our goal is not to treat their glucose, it's to treat their ketosis. And um, this gets a little muddy if they're in more of a, what you might call an HHS instead of DKA, meaning their sugar is very high, but they're not ketotic. That's more of treating the glucose and just their hyperosmolar state. But most of the problems here, other than just from hypovolemia and such, are from ketosis. So their glucose is going to fall as we give them insulin. As it gets to under maybe 250, certainly 200, we're probably going to want to switch their fluids, whatever kind of maintenance you have them on, or if you didn't have them on any, uh, and I probably would have them on something, switch them to something with dextrose in it. So the classic thing is D5 half normal saline. I think that's fine. Again, this is one of those things I think people overthink about a little bit. Um, If their sodium is kind of corrected or you correct it and they are hyponatremic, it's certainly reasonable to give them something more along the lines of a saline. You could do something balanced like an LR. Otherwise, I I don't care all that much. But something with dextrose. And some people will say it's to keep them from overshooting and getting too low, which is sort of true. But really, the goal here is to allow you to keep giving them insulin without them getting too low. Because... They haven't come out of ketosis yet. Now, they may have, but usually their glucose drops before they do. So there's two separate goals here. One is to get their glucose down, and the other is to clear their DKA. So on the DKA side of it, we're following their labs. And we said probably we'll go by their anion gap. So we're watching their serial chemistries. We're watching their bicarb climb. Every time we're calculating the anion gap or we're being lazy and maybe the lab does it for us. But once their anion gap gets back to normal, we're going to say they're getting out of DKA. Now, I like to see their gap clear not just once, but on two consecutive chemistries. Because if you just wait for it to barely be normal and then you stop doing stuff, sometimes it opens back up again. Um, So... You get a BMP, their anion gap is like 10 or 11, it's normal. Great. You probably already have a glucose that's maybe under 200. You've got them still on a low-dose insulin drip, but you've started some fluids with D5. Great. Um, Now we're going to start thinking about transitioning from the insulin drip to a subcutaneous regimen. So this is going to involve some basal long-acting insulin and some short-acting insulin. And this is similar to how people learn to do insulin kind of more chronically or in the outpatient setting, but it's kind of different because we're not trying to create a perfect regimen that they can live on forever. We're just trying to get them on something that will keep them controlled and keep them out of DKA until they can futz around with it later. So 
how are you going to figure out how much to give them? There's a couple ways. The easiest way is if they're on an insulin regimen at home, and normally they're well-controlled, and this is just some acute issue, then you can probably put them back on their home regimen. So an acute issue would be like, uh, I didn't take my insulin for five days because of an insurance issue. Or uh, I have a cold, so I got sick, and that's what messed it up, or something like that. And it can be useful to get a sense for how well-controlled they normally are. So you could send, say, a hemoglobin A1c. And if it's uh, quite good, then that would suggest this is really more of an acute thing. And if it's, you know, 15 or something, and they're normally very hyperglycemic, then you think maybe this is more of a sort of acute on chronic control issue. But so that's one option. You put them on their home regimen. If their home regimen is all over the place, or they haven't really been doing it at all, or if they're a new diagnosis, or they've never been on insulin, then you got to figure out on your own. Um, I've seen protocols where you kind of guesstimate based on just absolute numbers or their their weight or something like that. Usually what I'll do is use the insulin drip to guide us. So what you want to do is get a sense for their 24-hour insulin requirement. So if they've been on the drip for 24 hours, then great. Sometimes they haven't been on that long. But even if they have been, you got to give it some thought because I'm pretty sure the insulin required to bring you from a glucose of 900 down to 150 and then keep you there is going to be more than the insulin required to just keep you there, right? So I try to ignore those initial numbers as they were bringing down their numbers. And once they've reached kind of a steady state and you've got them in a reasonable-ish range and, and they're just staying there over several hours, what's the dose that was required to do that? So let's say that was about three units an hour, to keep them, you know, 150, 200 around there. Great. Multiply that by 24. So what, 24 times three, that's, let's call it um, 75 to be easy. So if that's about their 24-hour requirement, we're going to give half as basal and half as short-acting, right? So call it, I don't know, uh, 37 is half. So about that, half of that will be basal insulin. And usually you'll do glargine or lantus. You could do something else like um, NPH or something, but that's usually easiest. And then we should then cut it again for a safety margin. How much to do this depends. I'll usually go somewhere between 50 and 75, 80% of that number. So if that was going to be 37-ish basal, uh, I'd probably give somewhere between, um, what, uh, half of that is like 18, uh, I don't know, maybe between 18 and 25 units, something like that. So we're going a little light on the basal, but it gives us some margin for error and you can always make up for it on short acting. So let's say, let's say 18 to be simple, 18 units of insulin glargine. Once they've cleared their gap twice, we're going to give them that. And, you know, if they cleared it once, you can kind of get setting up. And you can even give it to them then. There's no harm in giving your long-acting a little early. There's even some studies where you give it right up front in your treatment. I don't know about that because I I like to have the drip for a while to get a sense for their dosing. But um, you can kind of get ahead of it and get ready for your next chemistry where you prove that they're cleared and then you can get them off it. So after at least two hours on your long-acting, then you can shut off your drip. 
and then you start them on short acting. And um, the endocrinologists, I think, often do just prandial sub-Q insulin. So it's like a fixed dose with meals. Um, you can do that. I think for the inpatient setting, and especially the ICU, we're used to doing sliding scale insulins. So that's often what I'll do. And then you, you got to look at your scale, though, and make sure that it's going to make up the, the remainder of that insulin dose you concocted. And because it's a scale, you got to do some thinking. So what I'll do is look at your scale, look in the ranges that a patient will typically be in if they're pretty well controlled. So the kind of uh, 100 to 200 to maybe low 200 kind of range, and how much are they getting for that? And then if you multiply that across the day, how much total is that for their short acting? And if it's not making up that the half of whatever number you came to, you probably need to increase your scale. Um, now, if it's a lot, you may be happier giving a fixed prandial dose plus a sliding scale. Obviously, that amounts to the same thing as a higher sliding scale, but people s- seem more comfortable with that sometimes. Um, the other thing you can decide is, are you just going to give like ACHS, so mealtime, and then at nighttime, perhaps sliding scales. Or you could give it, say, Q four hours, something like that, which will be a little more often. And if they're kind of a bad case, they have a high requirement, I'll often do Q4 because they get a little more often and there's not big gaps at night and things like that. Um, And I feel like that's a little less likely for them to have a problem again. So that's what I'll usually do. And... Uh, I think some of this is cultural. I don't usually involve someone like endocrinology and something like this. Um, unless uh, there's been a complicated outpatient situation, like they're having trouble getting their meds or they need to really kind of tweak their outpatient regimen, you can get, rope them in so they can kind of transition to what they're going to do outside. What I'm giving them here is not meant to be forever. This is just getting them out of the ICU and out of DKA kind of stuff. Um, that's what I'll do. So long acting, turn the drip off set them up with a short acting thing, uh, Q4, Q6, mealtimes, whatever. Make sure you do cover them, you know, shortly after you turn your drip off. Don't wait eight hours until they eat or something. I would cover them then. And then the other thing is they should eat. I will try to get them to have a meal around this time when we turn off the insulin. And that's usually when you can turn off their D5 drip as well. Um, But they should have some kind of a meal. And actually, this is kind of important. It's hard to maintain a reasonably stable blood sugar without eating. Uh, And that means like high or low, just to be stable. So if someone can't tolerate NEPO, for instance, they're still nauseous from their DKA, or sometimes it's a chronic thing. Some of these patients have bad gastroparesis. you should, you should think twice about transitioning too quickly out of this. Sometimes you get stuck on these drips for a while until they can eat something, even if it's just, whatever, crackers and juice or something. Um, I have had the occasional person who we, we got them off the insulin drip. We left them on a, a substantial amount of, of D5 IV and kind of treated that as their glucose intake. But really, ideally, they should be eating. And that... That's mostly it. I'll usually maybe check one more chemistry after the drips are off and stuff just to prove everything is good. Occasionally, you can have a patient who uh, relapses, but typically they do okay. And then usually they can get out of the ICU after, you know, a handful of hours after all this when you've proven they're stable-ish, their sugars are okay, they're eating, etc. Let's talk about one situation real quick that I think sometimes trips people up. Let's say our gentleman comes in looking very similar, except his glucose, instead of being 420, is 220. Is he still in DKA? 
Yeah, great question. Um, some people really get hung up on like definitions, like does this count as DKA? Or another one is um, their bicarb is low, but their pH is normal because they're somehow compensated or their multiple sure. processes. Is this still DKA? Yeah, sure, whatever. I mean, uh, are you doing a study or something? I don't know. The The issue, if they're not very hyperglycemic or at all, is that maybe it's not not D. It's still probably a ketoacidosis if they still have a gap, and especially if you prove it with ketones. So you should certainly probably do something like a beta hydroxy to prove it. You can do urine ketones. That's certainly suggestive too. But I mean, the other causes of ketoacidosis are usually either we'd call an alcoholic ketoacidosis or like a starvation ketoacidosis. And those are kind of similar, but they're just ketosis for other reasons. It's not because of a glucose metabolism problem. It's because there's not enough glucose or for whatever reason, you're, you're not using your normal glucose metabolism. You know, it's, it's actually trendy in some circles to intentionally put yourself in ketosis now, like a mild ketosis for dietary reasons. So That'll happen in patients who are, you know, malnourished or in settings like that. There are some medications that can do that. Um, so that's something to tuck away. And we even see that in the ICU sometimes, patients who have not been well nourished. Um, but in a way, you treat similarly. It's just they're not usually so deranged. They're not so hypovolemic and so on. And obviously, you can't – it's like you're jumping ahead. You don't have to drop the glucose much because it's already pretty normal. So you got to jump right to giving them – insulin plus sugar. So you could put them on a drip or something. If they're not too bad, you can just nourish them. But if they're, you know, pretty acidotic, then you may need to give them insulin, but certainly they need glucose. So whether that means a dextrose drip or something else and, you know, do these other things like look for causes, but often you can kind of guess, you know, it's a patient who drinking every day, hasn't had a, a real meal in, you know, weeks, or they've been in your ICU for two weeks and you haven't fed them or, or something like that. So what about, uh, one last special circumstance, I guess. What about the, the type one diabetic with the insulin pump? Mm, that's a good one. So how you handle this is somewhat institutional. I think, I think most people in places are most comfortable getting you off the pump and you treat them like anybody else. The pump is kind of a, a wild card. Um, inlet, I mean, unless you're a master of insulin pumps and you can manage it and, you know, interrogate it and adjust it and stuff. But I mean, it's not a piece of hospital equipment. And frankly, if they've been on it, they're still in DKA. So something's not working. <laughs> the, their settings were not working or the pump wasn't working or whatever. So I think typically we would get them off it, treat them medically. And then, you know, that's a good opportunity to have the endocrinologist come in and you can troubleshoot and you could even try to get them back on it as an inpatient if that's what you want, or they can deal with it in the clinic or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, so I think the insulin pump is scary uh, to those of us who don't do endocrine. Um, but really this is some pretty simple critical care stuff, right? What happens when your ventilator's not working? You disconnect the ventilator and remove it from the equation. So the same thing with the insulin pump, disconnect the insulin pump, remove it from the equation, treat as above, um, and then call endocrine and say, somebody needs to come look at this pump. Yeah. Your pump didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> for, for whatever reason, like you said. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think you're right. I give you a, a lot of grief for being a Mickey nerd, but I'm a little bit of a Mickey nerd at heart too. And DKA is certainly something, like you said, that is, it's just good fundamental critical care, doing all of them calculations and balancing things 
and looking at all the things uh, that can possibly go wrong. And these patients are, or certainly can be terribly, terribly sick and difficult to manage. Um, echo what you said about wherever you're working probably has some sort of protocol, uh, familiarize yourself with that. Um, but don't, uh, you know, we still have to think and don't necessarily just follow the protocol slavishly. Um, uh, and then, like I said, this is just good, good fundamental critical care stuff. Yeah. And, you know, you may have some kind of institutional approach for it. Um, you may not. You may have one and people don't necessarily follow it. But there's certainly room for interpretation here. A lot of this is a matter of uh, preference or art or whatever. It's just a matter of knowing what the goals are. So how do you do the fluids? Whatever. But you know what the goals are, which is to get them, right. you know, resuscitated right. like anybody else. You know, how do you give them potassium? Whatever. But you understand that it's going to start high. It's going to drop as you treat their acidosis. So you need a way to get ahead of that and so on. Um, it, and that's why, again, why I like this as critical care. It it uh, it gives you all these abnormalities, and then you have to target them as goals, and then you kind of develop your tool bag for doing these things. And then when you have a patient who has these same abnormalities for some other reason, you you've got practice treating that metabolic acidosis or that you know hypokalemia or whatever from all these DKA patients. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us. I hope this has been an informative um, discussion and we'll see you next time.